In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Christopher Gimmer about stair-stepping your way to SaaS. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 480. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, a podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups, whether you built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Chris Gimmer, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me this week. Pretty interesting story this week. Uh, Christopher Gimmer did a talk at MicroConf Starter back in April, and he and his co-founder really stair-stepped. They launched an app that had one-time sales. It was a marketplace. They grew that to where it plateaued, which wasn't enough that they could live on. And they saw an opportunity and started almost like a B2C type stock photo site. I guess not B2C, but kind of B2B. And then use that to parlay into a SaaS app. So I don't want to belabor it because we get into you know Chris's uh, entire experience in the interview. And one thing I really like about Chris's story is that he and his co-founder, they learned small things first. And they didn't try to go play in the major leagues when they didn't have the skills to do that. They went and they played Little League. And then they went and played high school ball. Then they played college ball. Then they played minor leagues. And then they played major leagues. And that is that repeatable, meticulous, disciplined way that I've always believed in starting startups. It's not trying to raise hundreds of millions and take this big luck shot that you may or may not be, have the skills or the, the confidence or the whatever to do. But after listening to Chris's story, you know that even if he were to exit his company today, that he has a skill set that he can take with him to the next thing, to the next thing. And it becomes this, these repeatable startups building real products, selling them to real customers for real money. So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation. Christopher Gimmer, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about Snappa, your startup that's at snappa.com. And your headline is Create Online Graphics in a Snap, Whip Up Graphics for Social Media Ads, Blogs, and More, Even If You're Not a Graphic Designer. You did a talk about nine months ago at MicroConf Starter, and it was a, a really interesting tale of your journey with your co-founder across six or seven years, multiple apps to how you got to where you are today, where Snappa, you, would, you, know, you and I were just talking before the call that... You expect to hit a million dollars in ARR in the next month or two. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks very much. And Snappa, you guys launched it in November of 2015. You had $4,000 MRR at the end of the first month. Is that right? Yeah, so we had built up a bit of a, a list before we officially launched and we had, you know, kind of like a beta period. So, you know, we, we had an audience to launch to. And then, yeah, within uh, a month of launching, we, we did hit about $4,000 uh, in MRR. Which is obviously good. And we're going to dig in to that in this episode about how you got there and how you kind of parlayed, stair-stepped your way up multiple apps. It's a pretty, pretty interesting story. And by April of 2019, which again was about nine months ago, you guys were at about 62K MRR. That's what you mentioned in the talk. And then you're just about to hit the magic, $83,333.33. And for those who aren't in the know, that is 1 million ARR, which is a, a mark. It's a, it's a funny, it sounds odd when you say it in MRR, but in ARR, it is, it's so cool to say, yeah, I run a seven-figure business. You looking forward to that day? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I remember when Mark is, is my co-founder, and I remember when we first started Snappa, we were like, man, if we can just get to 10K MRR, like, 
life will just be magical. And then, you know, obviously you end up hitting that. And then, you know, everyone just talks about the millionaire and the seven figures. And so kind of once we, we, we were kind of full-time on Snappa and, and we we're making a, a living off it, that kind of next yardstick for, I mean, it's super arbitrary, but it was always like, yeah, I'd love to get to uh, that millionaire R. So we'll, we'll definitely celebrate what, when we hit it uh, most likely next month. Yeah, that's cool. Do you have plans of, of what you'll do? Like, are you and your co-founder remote or are you able to get together and have a glass of champagne together? We both live in Ottawa. We're, you know, we're pretty much like best friends. So we hang out uh, quite a bit. So yeah, we'll, we might do something special. We haven't planned exactly what yet, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely do something. Good. Yeah. If there's anything I've learned from my wife, who is, for folks who don't know, Sherry Walling, she's a psychologist and she works with founders, is to celebrate those wins because they are unfortunately few and far between and there's a lot more struggle than there is the wins and i was never i've never been good at celebrating the wins and she has has forced me to do it and i think it's a good thing for everybody and frankly the win is not just you and your co-founder it's like take your wife out to dinner or your your fiance out to a great dinner or on a great trip or so you know i mean like that's the thing it's like the whole family had to put up with me when I was growing my app. I'm sure your girlfriend, now fiance, has to had to put up with a lot of crap from you as well. So it's like, I think I think we all deserve to kind of have have those wins when they come in. Yeah, definitely. She'll, she'll be excited to hear that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Something about your story, I, it, it lines up with both stair-stepping that I talk about a lot, but also this, this concept, this quote that I keep throwing out of, doing things in public creates opportunity. You went through multiple apps to get to where you are now. And you had one in 2012 that's kind of unrelated, but in, in, was it 2013 where you launched Bootstrap Bay? Yeah, it was 2014. 2014. Okay. And that was a, a theme marketplace for Bootstrap, which is a CSS framework. And tell me about, you know, how you guys thought, like what the goal was there in, in launching that. Was it, we want to launch a business very much the, the dream of all of us. It's to get to the point where it's, it's supporting us full time. Yeah, that was definitely the goal of, of Bootstrap Bay. So Mark and I, um, so we actually were both working in the in the government. That's that's how we met, and it was it was funny because we were like two of the youngest guys in the office, and you know naturally we just started hanging out and and became friends. And then one day, like Mark had kind of pulled me into his office, and he's like, "Oh, I want to show you something." And it was this, it was almost like a, a, a Zillow type of website, like a real estate website. And I was like, wow, you, you can actually program. Like I, I had no idea because he was doing something unrelated at work. And then, so that kind of kicked off like the journey of me and him just trying to figure stuff out and, and see if we can, you know, launch a business that could enable us to quit our jobs. So yeah, the goal of Bootstrap Bay was, um, it was just a, something that we could do while we were still working our jobs full time. And hopefully the, the, the idea was that we can make enough money from it uh, so that we can quit and go full time on it. it. It wasn't necessarily like a project that we're like super passionate about and that we were planning on running for the next 10 or 20 years. That's interesting. So why start it as a marketplace where you have essentially you have to get buyers and sellers rather than build out a bunch of your own themes and just sell it, you know, sell them like, like basically an, you're a digital product company instead of a marketplace? Yeah. So essentially, funny enough, you know, we started reading a lot about you know, keyword research and SEO. And initially we were actually looking for things that we can drop ship or whatever. And then Mark had kind of stumbled across this bootstrap themes and bootstrap templates as a keyword, which was getting a lot of search volume. And at the time didn't have 
crazy competition like theme forest didn't even have its own bootstrap category and there was kind of one major uh, marketplace at the time which was which was called rat bootstrap i think it's still really big today and for a variety of reasons and and being super naive we thought like oh we can build something better than this <laughs> so in order to exceed the marketplace you know mark had kind of designed the first like three four themes but we just thought it would be more scalable if we were able to get other theme authors on board and and kind of add more supply to the marketplace than we can generate on our own. So that's kind of how it happened. Was Bootstrap Bay a successful business? Like, can you give us an idea of how much revenue it brought in for you? So the the peak month was, I think it was doing about like 8 to 10K or something. So once we paid out like all the theme authors and something, I think we were profiting maybe uh, 4K or something. So it was maybe a decent like side hustle business, but we essentially got to the point where we were having trouble growing strictly through SEO. And because our margins and, and the lifetime value wasn't high enough, we just couldn't put any money into uh, paid ads. And we just you know started plateauing after about a year. And, and we knew it was going to be an uphill battle from there, which was kind of why we, we started thinking about other stuff that we could launch. Yeah, no recurring revenue, and the funnel is only so wide, right? There's only so many people searching for for bootstrap themes. Yeah, and the other problem was, like I'd mentioned, the the top marketplace. And as you know, like first mover, and this is something I learned after the fact is when you're kind of the dominant marketplace and you've got the first mover advantage, it's just so hard to to unseat them. So we had we were ranking like number two or three, and 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 the number one guy was just you know cleaning up. So we we, we knew it was going to be a really really tough battle and one that we didn't really want to uh, <laughs> to keep fighting. Right. Yeah. As you said, a nice side hustle because obviously 4K a month is nothing to nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. I have this this concept of four um, competitive advantages in when you launch a SaaS app. One is is who you know, so it's your network. The second is who knows you, so it's your audience. The third is being early to a space. And I have to say, like you know, Josh with Bear Metrics was early. In this case, you guys were early, right? You were able to get in. You weren't the first, but you were early enough that you were able to get in. I, can you imagine launching a Bootstrap themes uh, market? place now yeah it would be really difficult i mean we we were even too late but we were still early enough where you know the the really big players hadn't specifically focused on it so if we were to do that today i mean there's just no way we we would have gotten any traction at all quite frankly yeah, it'd be painful. And so you kind of you kind of plateaued with that business, and I think of it as like a step one. If I if I were to overlay this this stair step approach to bootstrapping like that, it's a nice it was a nice step one business. It brought in non recurring revenue. It brought in enough money that it made it worthwhile, and it was a success. You gained experience. You probably gained some confidence in your skills, both you and your co founder. You had a little bit of an an audience, I'll say, not audience in the blog or podcast type where people are looking at you as a personal brand, but audience in the sense of uh, traffic, right? You just had a lot of traffic coming in. And then you you build out your SEO and your your content skill sets. And so you went from there and you started a StockSnap, StockSnap.io. Can you tell us about, you know, there was, a, there was a unique opportunity you almost stumbled upon that led you from Bootstrap Bay to StockSnap? Yeah, so one of the ways that we ended up growing Bootstrap Bay was primarily through content marketing and SEO. And we ended up writing um, a blog post about where to find free stock photos. And this is when a lot of these really new Creative Commons sources started popping up, like Unsplash and, and Pexels, and these sites started getting, are, are today are really big. 
And so when we had written that blog post of, of where to get free stock photos, we started sharing it around, you know, Reddit and social media, whatnot. And out of all places, it, it went viral on StumbleUpon, um, which I don't even know if it, that site still exists today. And next thing you know, we start ranking on the first page of Google for free stock photos. And I, I figured at some point that would kind of die off, but the traffic just kept kept increasing like, you know, month over month. So we were in this interesting position where we're, we're getting so much traffic just to this one blog post. And we kind of looked at all the, you know, websites that we were uh, linking to at the time. And we noticed that, uh, it, again, this is in the early days, that none of them had search functionality. So a lot of them were releasing like 10 new photos every 10 days or, or something to that effect. So we thought, well, why don't we just create our own stock photo site that you could actually search? So Mark went ahead and I think it took him about like three months and he ended up building uh, what became StockSnap. And then, of course, because we had all that traffic coming to the blog post, we just linked to ourselves as a source. And then next thing you know, we started getting a bunch of traffic to uh, StockSnap.io. So at that point, were, were you thinking, we want to start another business? Like Bootstrap Bay has plateaued and we're going to kind of autopilot it. And we're going to, if we launch StockSnap, we want to turn that into a business? Or was it just kind of a fun lark that you went, hey, I got all this traffic, might as well put a website up? Yeah, so that was kind of the thinking is like, you know, at this point, Bootstrap Bay was plateauing. We knew that it wasn't going to be the business that, that would enable us to quit our jobs and, and everything. And so we just saw this opportunity and, you know, we knew that like a free stock photo site is just something that is always going to have value. And we just, we just kind of saw it as an opportunity that like, Hey, if we build this up now and we, and we, you know, start getting a lot of traffic to this website, we'll almost certainly be able to either monetize the website itself through ads or use that as a springboard to launch um, some other app down the road. And to be honest, like we we already kind of started thinking about SaaS at that point. And I kind of had this idea in the back of my head for this kind of graphic design tool for, you know, marketers or entrepreneurs, if you will, because I was always struggling to put these images together whenever I needed to add a feature image to one of our blog posts. So that was kind of the thinking of, you know, we're getting all this traffic to the blog post. Why not? divert it to some of to one of our own properties, which could be very valuable to us down the line. Yeah, that makes sense. And did you wind up making revenue from StockSnap? Yeah, so after we launched StockSnap, like I said, at that point, we really started exploring the idea of a, a SaaS app, which obviously became Snappa. So we, you know, I think we had like one carbon ad placement or something like that, which was, you know, bringing in like, I can't remember, like maybe a, a grand or two a month or something in advertising. But almost from the start, we started using StockSnap as a way of promoting Snappa as opposed to, you know, really trying to monetize the the website as much as we could. Yeah, that makes sense. And with Bootstrap Bay and StockSnap, obviously, you know, the, people know the end result that you, you started Snappa, and, you know, you're going to be at seven figures soon. Do you still own those other properties or did you exit from them? Yeah, we ended up uh, selling them off. You know, StockSnap was was a bit of a, I guess, a more difficult decision in the sense that it was still bringing in quite a bit of traffic. But, you know, I think when we first launched Snappa, probably like 80% or 90 or maybe even 90% of our leads were coming in from StockSnap. Whereas by the time we sold it, I think it only made up like 10 or 15% of our leads because we had really built up our 
you know, content and, and SEO and word of mouth. So at that point, we decided like it, it just makes much more sense to uh, to put a bunch of cash in our bank account and focus on one thing as opposed to, you know, trying to maintain, you know, two, two separate properties. That makes sense. And by that time you had a, a SaaS app that you're focused on, which as we know, takes, takes a lot of attention. I'm curious during, you know, we, we've kind of glossed over like f- several years of, of work here. We almost made it sound easy. You know, like you kind of stumbled into this thing and you ranked number one in Google for this free stock photos, which is very hard to do. In my experience, this kind of stuff is a grind, especially when you're learning it from scratch, like learning SEO to get as good as you guys are, as well as the content side of things, um, which that's really what your wheelhouse has become, right? Is this is the social promotion and then getting the organic traffic for high high competition terms. Like how long did that take you to learn? And, and did you feel like it was something where you're just grinding it out, not getting results for a while, and then it suddenly clicked? Or what was that process like? Yeah, so as you mentioned at the the top of the interview, the the first thing we ever launched back in 2012 was it was actually like a student dating website. And without going too much into it, that was basically a year of of work that was not successful <laughs> ultimately. And then there was actually a, a another app in 2013 which didn't go anywhere. So there was basically two years that we were working on stuff and we got absolutely nowhere. And I think a lot of people might have just given up at that point. And so kind of before Bootstrap Bay is when I really realized like, man, I don't know what I'm doing with (laughs) with regards to marketing. And I kind of just read like tons of blog posts and listened to, you know, tons of podcasts and and videos and that kind of stuff. So at least with, with Bootstrap Bay at that point, I had built up some knowledge in terms of like how to do it. But obviously you kind of have to put that practice into motion. But even with Bootstrap Bay, I mean, the first three, four months, as you know, SEO takes a long time. So it was a lot of trial and error, you know, a lot of blog posts didn't end up working out. But, you know, the more you try and, and, and the more content you put out there, you start to realize what works. And then you get a bit of a process and a bit of a formula going. So God, I would say about six months to a year into it, at least with Bootstrap Bay, we started figuring out the content side of things. But that being said, you know, we did plateau. And that was kind of the next frustrating thing was, you know, we were a year into this business. It's still only spitting off a couple grand of cash for, for the both of us. How are we going to get to that next level? And, you know, at the time, we, we, we didn't know that everything would work out. But you start questioning, like, is it worth it? Should we really be spending like our nights and weekends <laughs> trying to trying to get this going? And, and you know, you kind of have to just persevere. Yeah. And that's what I like about your story is you, you didn't really have these marketing skills and you went out and in true founder form, you just learned things that were probably difficult, trial and error. You ground it out and you start this site and it's in a small niche. I'll say Bootstrap is not the most massive niche in the world. And you learned the skill set in a less competitive space, right? You didn't start an ESP, you didn't start a CRM, you didn't start some massive SaaS app as your as your first first effort. You started a couple small things and and Bootstrap Bay gets some traction and then you learned SEO and content really well and then you just stock photos just one level harder than that. The Snappa stuff is kind of still in the same boat, but it's a very wide funnel. And, you know, if you didn't have the four years of learning, five years of learning before that, starting Snappa would have been really hard, right, without the skills. I mean, do you think you could have even succeeded without all the knowledge that you'd gained from the other failed and successful efforts? Well, I I think there's two things that made Snappa successful. Number one was everything that you alluded to, like (laughs) 
I mean, the, the first couple of things that we launched, like we just didn't really know what we we're doing. It, it took a while to really learn those uh, content and SEO skills and how to get traction and, you know, just how to actually grow a software application or, or any kind of website, to be frank. And then the second thing that made it possible was having that existing funnel of traffic through Stocksnap because, as you know, the lower the price point, the more customers you need to make an app work or sustainable, I should say. So it would have been extremely difficult if, you know, day one of launching Snapout, we have no existing list or no existing user base that we could tap into to, to kind of get that going. And, and that's really why we were able to get up to 4,000 MRR just after a month because we had all of that, you know, that list and that user base built up already. So talk to me then about Snappa. You know, you mentioned in your microcom talk, I remember you mentioned it, you built it to solve a problem that you yourself were facing. And what was that problem? Yeah. So basically, you know, as we mentioned, I was doing a lot of content marketing for Bootstrap Bay. And so for each blog post, you know, we need to create a featured image and, and also some images within the content itself. And so, you know, I was doing a lot of this stuff in Photoshop. We didn't really have the money at the time to hire a designer. Mark was pretty good with Photoshop, but he's working on development, which is more of a top priority. So I just thought like, man, it would be nice if there was a tool that, that just made a lot of this easier. And when I did some brief kind of market research at the time, I found that the tools were either too simplistic, like it was essentially a, a quote generator, or they were still too complicated. And so I thought there would there was a need to create something that was kind of in the middle, where it was still super easy to use, but still not overly complicated, that really anyone can just pick up and use it. And so... Talk me through the the customer development you did to validate that because you know there's the the old adage you should build stuff for yourself solve a problem you have but I always caveat that with yeah but make sure other people have it too and make sure they're willing to pay for that how did how did you do those things so because we had Stocksnap we had an email list of people so the first thing that I did was emailed our list and just asked what they were using their stock photos for. And as I kind of expected, a good percentage of those were using it for either social media or content marketing, which was kind of our, our target audience or what we thought would be our target audience. And then one step further, uh, or sorry, for the people that did answer saying that they were using it for content and social media, I asked if, if anyone would be willing to hop on a 10 to a 15 minute call just to, to learn about, you know, how they're using the, the stock photos and whatnot. So I ended up getting a call with, I think, around 15 to 20 people in the end. And I was just asking them questions about exactly what they're using the photos for. And then kind of going a step further in terms of what tools they were currently using to create graphics, you know, what their process was like, who's involved with it, with that process. And taking a lot of the questions that I learned from the Lean Customer Development book, and the, the number one takeaway from that book is basically not to ask a leading question. So I never once asked them, hey, this is what I'm building. Do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> or any kind of those leading questions. And I was essentially trying to see if they would mention without me kind of poking them, whether or not they had pain points with the existing solutions. And after about 15 to 20 of those calls, you know, a lot of people did mention or, or said things like, 
yeah, right now I'm using Photoshop and it's a huge pain and takes too much time. Or yeah, I tried this app out, but it's it's, it's not really that great. Or yeah, we, we use a an in-house graphic designer, but the turnaround time is is uh, sometimes two to three days. I wish I could just like do it myself. And so when I heard enough of those kinds of comments, uh, it, it gave us enough confidence to at least go ahead and start building uh, some sort of MVP uh, for Snappa. Super cool. And so Mark is a developer, right? Did he just sit down to start hacking it out? Yeah, that was pretty much it. Like I said, we built things in the past that didn't really work out. So we wanted to make sure that there was going to be a market for this because this was by far going to be the the biggest and most complicated thing that he's ever built. So we, we wanted to to really make sure that this could be a viable business. So once we, again, once we had that validation, then Mark went ahead and just uh, locked himself in the basement and, and started hacking away. And it feels like the story kind of writes itself from there, right? You you have a lot of SEO and content skills. You applied that, you cross-promoted from StockSnap. You sent, you know, you had this existing audience, existing traffic sources that you then promoted in order to grow Snappa. I'm curious a couple things, a couple questions that I want to touch on before we wrap. One is, early on you said, you know, when we first started talking about building an app, we said, wouldn't it be magical to hit 10K? Was it magical when you hit 10K? Yeah, it was actually. I, I don't remember if, if it was exactly 10K, but it was magical the moment that we knew that this was going to sustain us. Like, we didn't have to go back to our jobs. The business has legs. Uh, at some point, we'd be able to probably hire more team members, just to know that we we had done it. Like it had taken us, like I said, the first thing we had launched was 2012. So, you know, this is several years in the making. It, it truly did feel magical. And we still feel very fortunate today that, that we're able to do this. Yeah, I agree. How large is your team at this point? So now we have four uh, full-time team members and, and they're awesome. Like another thing that I really didn't anticipate was you know, how much uh, more fun it is working with a team. So we, we were really fortunate to have such awesome people working working with us at this point. So yeah, four full-time. Uh, and then we, we also work with a couple like freelancers and writers and stuff like that. Yeah, that's good. That's pretty capital efficient business to only have four, four folks working on it. Another question for you is your price points. So on an annual basis, you're ten and twenty dollars a month. On a monthly basis, you're fifteen and thirty. It looks like, you know, and when I see an app like that, I think, "Ouch!" You're probably gonna have just from the outside. I don't know all your numbers, but I would expect high churn. I would expect a low average revenue per user, which means you're pretty limited in how you can market. Like, you're not gonna run AdWords as an example because you just you don't have the lifetime value. How, how has that been? A is that relatively? You know, am I, am I relatively on the mark? And B, how has that been for you guys? Yeah, no, well, 100%, you're definitely on the mark. You know, as you can imagine, we have probably higher churn than than some of the other apps or, or founders that you've, you've had on the show. And that just goes with the territory of, of the low price point. So that that's always been a challenge. And, and another reason why we've had to get really good at uh, organic in, in particular, and why we focus, you know, a lot of time and effort on, on content marketing and SEO. Um, at this point, we, we don't do any paid advertising whatsoever. So we really do rely on word of mouth and, and SEO and content and just giving a really good experience so that, you know, people talk about us, we get mentioned in blog posts and just have a, a sustainable and repeatable way of acquiring the users. One thing that's interesting, though, that maybe not a lot of people think about is 
I think you had the founder of, was it UserList uh, that you had, that you were talking to a couple? Jane Portman. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because I, I remember she was talking about how it's difficult to get people to either try the app or switch to UserList. And so I think on one hand, it's, it's, uh, it's really nice to, to have a low churn app because once they kind of get in, usually they, they stick around and it's uh, maybe easier to build a sustainable business that way. But on the other hand, with an app like Snappa, I mean, we're freemium, you can try it out. And really within a couple minutes of, of even trying out Snappa, you're going to know whether it's going to provide value to you. And so the flip side of high churn is that our, you know, our activation and our or yeah, like our activation rates and our kind of the, the top of the funnel converts super well. So that that's one thing that maybe, you know, some people don't consider with these types of apps. Yeah, there's almost no switching cost, right? It's just it's just learning which buttons to click, but they, they don't have to migrate stuff over. And I, I agree. I think that's a real advantage to it. And I think longer term, I think an app like a user list or my experiences with Drip was there was a lot of switching costs. It was harder to get people in. The churn was really low once they got in, but you're right. It was, the growth was tough. The growth was hard fought, but once you got that growth, it was there. It was locked in. And I think that's where it cuts the two ways is that Snappa, you're, I bet your funnel is so much wider. <laughs> the number of people that visit your website, the number of people that sign up for a trial and the number of people that probably start paying you is astronomically higher than what we had at Drip as an example. And I think that that is a unique advantage, especially when your skill set is SEO and content, which tend to be wide funnel things. Not always, but especially in the spaces you've been playing, deliberately, these are wide funnels. And that allows you to have this low price point and it allows you to not need to run ads, but still grow business to seven figures. Yeah, I'd say that's uh, super accurate. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love, you know, low churn to, to go along with what, what we have. But, you know, you, you kind of learn that the market that you choose in some extent controls, you know, how, how high your churn is going to be and, and that kind of stuff. So we've learned to just embrace it and accept it and just kind of stick to our lane, so to speak. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm going to assume that if we look back, let's say over the past year, that, or even I guess ahead two months, um, you're going to hit, you're about to hit a million in ARR. And I'm going to assume that that might be the high point of the year in terms of the business. What was the low point or the hardest part about the past year? Like a specific time that was, you felt like you were really grinding it out? I would say the last year, there wasn't too much low point, but in 2018, I think, yeah, I think it was around 2018 was we were just, growth was really slow and we're really starting to plateau. And at that point, we had, I don't know if it was a combination of like shiny object syndrome, or we were so scared of competition, because, you know, there's actually quite a bit of competition in our space. And, and we have a lot of like, really well funded competitors. And so we kind of went down this rabbit hole of like, oh, we need this, you know, we need to find a new business, or we need to find uh, another app, because at some point, we're just going to plateau. And, you know, we're not going to grow. And uh, I think we really took our eye off the prize, uh, so to speak. And that was a really tough year, just seeing, you know, growth plateauing a little bit and kind of <laughs> trying to get these other projects and spinning our wheels there. And so I think that was tough. And then in, in 2019, funny enough, we kind of realized like, hey, we're in a really good position. We, we have this app, you know, and I almost felt like we were taking it for granted or we kind of realized that we were taking it for granted. So we said, 
we're not going to start any new side projects. We're going to buckle down. We're going to figure out how to get growth back on track. And we really kind of focused back on the business. And we promised ourselves that we would never consider launching uh, another project until we hit a million ARR. So yeah, it's kind of funny how that worked out. Yeah, that makes sense that just refocusing. That's the thing. These these founder stories are almost never straight lines. It's very, very rare. You know, you hear the myth of people starting whatever, Uber, Facebook, Lyft, you know, these big companies. And they did a lot of side projects. There was a lot of uncertainty. And and I think our our stories in our own ecosystem are, are very similar, where you often have multiple projects going at once. You don't really know which one's gonna succeed often. And you know, you're you're just trying to trying to figure it out as you go. I think last question before we wrap is you mentioned something to me about a pricing experiment that you ran that kind of goes against the the charge more idea. And as as I said, you know, when we talked about it, it's like, well, yeah, you can always charge more until you can't, right? Or until you, people aren't willing to pay that. So there, there's always a ceiling to this stuff. But talk us through what you did with your your annual and your monthly pricing and how that worked out. Yeah, so I've obviously been to a few microcomps now, and one of the recurring themes, as you know, is always to charge more. And I've, I've just always been really scared to do that, again, especially because we're serving the lower end of, of the SMB market. We're in a really competitive space. But I thought, you know what, whatever, like, there's enough people telling me to, to just charge more. And so I'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and run the experiment. So what we did was we kept our annual price the same, uh, which is $120 a year for the pro plan. And then we bumped up the price of the monthly uh, pro subscription from $15 to $19 a month. And we were thinking like, well, more people will end up choosing the annual plan, which would obviously uh, help out with, with the churn. And then assuming that not uh, our conversions stay relatively the same, then because we're getting the $19 a month price point, even if churn is a bit higher, all in all, it, it should work out. And then after running that for, I think we ran it for a couple months, we realized pretty quickly that the churn had just spiked up way too high for our, our comfort. And the conversion rates had actually dropped more than we had anticipated. So we, we ended up reverting back to the, the pricing. So I'm glad that we we ran the experiment because uh, at least now I can kind of, <laughs> we can put that to rest. But um, yeah, it was just more proof that, you know, charge more or charge less or whatever isn't always the best advice. It, it's really a case by case basis. And that it just hinges on a variety of factors, really. Sure. And it's always, charge more is really great advice if you've never heard it before, because most people tend to charge too little when they launch. You know, most of us think our apps are not worth what they actually are. And so it's it's definitely good advice. But obviously, the further you get in, if you've experimented, if you know your customers, there's a certain point where pricing elasticity, you know, may or may not not be there. And you're also in a pretty price sensitive space, right? You're kind of in the prosumer, like one notch, I like to think one notch above consumers. And so there's going to be price sensitivity there. The lesson I take away from it is a experiment, because now you know, you know, you don't have to think about it every, every month, every week, should I be charging more? And B, you were scared to do it, but you did it anyway. And it was, sounds like it was a relatively easy experiment to undo, right? Which are the best. You just revert back. You just change the pricing back. And now you have one cohort of people or something who are paying a little less, I'd imagine. But that's that's a, a small price to pay to have kind of the the knowledge that that you probably are towards the top end of your range right now. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way that we did it was, yeah, basically any new customers, they would they would see that new price point. And then once we reverted back, uh, if there were any customers that were on that $19 a month plan, we just put them back on the $15 a month. So now, yeah, there, there, there's no one on that increased price. So it was a relatively safe and way to do it. And obviously, there's no backlash as a result. Yeah, that makes sense. I said people paying less. I was I had the pricing reverse, but whatever. Well, cool. Man, we're going to wrap up. Uh, folks want to check out Snappa. It's at snappa.com, snappa.com, just like it sounds. You are at C Gimmer on Twitter, and that's C for Christopher, C Gimmer. Any place else folks should check out? Yeah, that, that's about it. I'm trying to make an effort to do more uh, blogging on my personal site this year, chrisgimmer.com. There's only like a few posts on there, but yeah, Twitter's probably the, the best place for now. Aren't we all trying to blog a little more? I think I say <laughs> I say that every year and I still, uh, it's just so hard to find the time to write, you know? Yeah, I, I have a, um, essentially the, my, my goal for this year is one post a month, which I think is uh, super reasonable. And, and I think I'll be able to to hold myself to that and then we'll, we'll see how that goes sounds good man thanks again for coming on the show my pleasure i'm a huge fan of, of the podcast so happy to be on here awesome thanks again to chris for coming on the show if you have a question if you're curious about part of chris's story if you have questions about seo or content marketing feel free to either tweet me at rob walling or send them into questions at startups for the rest of us.com and if I get questions, I might invite Chris back on the show to uh, kind of share some of the skills because he has hard technical skills in this SEO and content space. And, and he's done a lot to grow these businesses, really wide funnels, and has a lot of knowledge there. So if you want to hear more about that, happy to have another conversation with Chris. You can also leave me a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or just email that questions email address and attach a file via Dropbox or Google Drive. This podcast theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us by searching for startups, and we would love a five-star review in whatever podcatcher you use. If you want a full transcript of this episode, wait a couple days after it goes live, then head to startupsfortherestofus.com, full searchable transcripts of every episode. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.